0: with God creating all things out of nothing. And throughout his work of creation, there is a refrain. God evaluated his work and declared it to be good. And at the end of the sixth day, when his work was complete, he saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. And so on the seventh day, God Rested from his work. And then in Genesis chapter 2, the creation story is retold, but this time with more details, especially regarding the sixth day. Here we're told that God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature. And God took special care of him. He gave Adam a fruitful garden to live in and to work. He gave Adam stewardship over creation. No other animal has this authority. But man was made in the image of God to do the work of God, to rule over creation. And God continued to evaluate creation in chapter 2, declaring it to be good. In verse 9, he made trees that were good for food. In verse 12, we read that he put gold in the land, and the gold of that land is good. But then, in verse 18, God declared that something was not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. But why not? The man has God. What does he lack? He, he has food. He has work. And at this point, there's no sin corrupting the world. Adam is innocent and righteous and faithfully carrying out the work that God gave him to do. What, what does he lack? There's no hint of sadness in Adam. He doesn't cry out to the Lord for help. He has no idea that it's not good for him to be alone. But God knows. God knows because he's a relational being. God does not exist in isolation, but as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And he is surrounded by a heavenly court. He has eternally existed in relationship. But man, who is made in God's image at this point in time, lacks companionship. This is a problem. And so God immediately declared his intention to solve man's problem. You can take comfort in this. The Lord knows. What you need before you do. Sometimes he makes provision before you recognize your need. Other times, he allows you to experience want so that you learn to appreciate his provision when it comes. And that's what he does for Adam. God immediately recognized Adam's problem and the solution. He said as much, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And yet, God doesn't immediately create a helper fit for him. Instead, he gave Adam more work to do by himself. He wanted to make sure that Adam would fully appreciate his wife. He wanted him to recognize that she is different from the rest of the living creatures God had made. She is uniquely suited for him. To do this, the Lord presented Adam with each living creature formed from the ground, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. One by one, he brought them to the man to see what Adam would call them, which at first might sound like a task a child could do. If there's no wrong answer, then whatever sound pops out of his mouth is good enough. A quibble fluff, a bumble chomp, a whirfler, whatever. But that doesn't capture what's going on. This isn't a creative exercise, but a scientific one. Adam's doing the work of a biologist. He's studying in classifying animals, evaluating them. And only then, in light of his study, does he name them. This work is the first fulfillment of God's directive in chapter 1 for man to exercise authority over the animals. And so he gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. Adam evaluated every one of God's living creatures and there was not one among them that was a helper fit for him. The aardvark? No. Ostrich? Nope. Zebra? Not happening. But what about a dog? Man's best friend. Now, a man and his dog can spend many enjoyable hours together in fellowship. They can play games and go on walks together. They can show and share affection There are countless songs, books, and movies that tell of the love one can have with a pet. But the fellowship between a man and a dog is always at the level of the dog. A dog can only communicate at its own level. For a true companion, Adam needed a woman. Only a woman made in the image of God could be a helper fit. For him. Now, let me make a brief comment about the word helper. Many women are uncomfortable with the word helper because it sounds like it would make them subservient to men. Now, thankfully, that concern is easy to resolve. Now, throughout the Bible, the word helper is most often used of God. The Lord is Israel's helper, and by no means is he sub. Subordinate to any of creation. In fact, he's Israel's helper because he's the stronger one. Now the word helper is related to other words which mean to save from danger or deliver from death. Now, the woman delivers or saves the man from his solitude. If anything, this points to the inadequacy of man, not of woman. Now, of course, we don't want to swing the pendulum so far in the other direction as to suggest that women are superior to men. The words fit for him mean correspond to, not as a superior or inferior, nor as an identical copy of himself, but as an equal helper. What a man lacks, a woman can provide, and vice versa. This is by God's design. And so God provided Adam what he lacked. But first, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, granting him rest from his work. This is a picture of the gospel. Adam had a problem and was unable to solve it, not even a little bit. In fact, he had no part to play in the solution at all. He slept while God did the work. It's the same way with the problem of sin that hinders our relationship with God. There's nothing we can do about it. We have to rest in what God has done through Jesus Christ to reconcile us to him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was at work while Adam was asleep. And just about every translation says that God took a rib from Adam which has led to speculation down the years as to whether men and women have varying amounts of ribs. They don't. Others have wondered if this explains why our ribs don't extend lower in our bodies. It doesn't explain that. That's not the point being conveyed. And besides, the word used is less specific than rib. The idea being conveyed is that, like a potter, God took a lump of raw material from the side of Adam and built it into a woman. She is made of the same substance as Adam, built from his side. In the words of Matthew Henry, the woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart, to be beloved. Well, God took this wonderful new creation and presented her to Adam as a gift, a sign of his love. And I can only imagine Adam's excitement upon seeing a woman for the first time. His enthusiasm is evident in verse 23, that these are the first words spoken by man and the only words spoken by Adam before sin entered into the world, and it's poetry. I wonder, was this a song? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's experience in categorizing and naming all the animals prepared him to evaluate and name this most wonderful creation. The words man and woman, ish and isha, are similar and yet distinct, like the two of them are. They naturally correspond to one another. They're of the same bone and flesh. A word of instruction regarding the institution of marriage immediately follows Adam's joyful outburst. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's interesting that in a patriarchal society, it's the man who leaves his home rather than the wife. Though this doesn't mean that a man is required to physically move away from his parents. Throughout the Bible, it was customary for a man to continue living with his parents. It was the wife who moved into her husband's house. The statement about leaving doesn't regard physical proximity, but loyalty. God intends for marriage to be a stronger bond, a more permanent one, than that of a parent and child. And many marriages struggle because husbands and wives fail to leave their parents and establish their first loyalty to each other. This often happens innocently, looking for advice, but in reality complaining about your spouse. Parents should not come between a man and his wife because their greater priority is to each other. They are to be one flesh. This chapter in Genesis reveals that marriage is the first human institution and it was created by God to be a monogamous commitment between one man and one woman united in one flesh. All other institutions arise from this one because all people come from the union of a man and woman. The fifth commandment grants the power of government to parents. The responsibility to nurture and raise their children together leads to other institutions, more and more institutions as there are more and more people, institutions such as family, government, schools, hospitals, and businesses. Each of these institutions are dependent on the first institution, marriage, and they will stand or fall on the strength of marriage. Now, you might be thinking, that all sounds great, but this first marriage in Genesis chapter 2 is unlike our experience of marriage today. That's certainly true. In verse 25, the last statement in the creation account, describes the uniqueness of their marriage. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And with the exception of this verse, nakedness in the Old Testament is always connected with some form of humiliation. That's due to the fall of man, described in Genesis chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, there are no barriers of any kind capable of driving a wedge between Adam and Eve. But with the fall came a tragic loss of innocence and new temptations. If it weren't for the fall, everyone would esteem the institution of marriage. It would be perfectly harmonious. But due to the presence of sin, marriage is infected with arguments, sorrow, discouragements. You know, throughout Scripture, we see example after example of sexual sin, polygamy, barrenness, divorce, and all sorts of grief. Today, there are plenty of people who don't want to get married. On the other hand, there are people who desire marriage but are unable to find a spouse. And no marriage enjoys perfect marriage compatibility. An ideal marriage would enjoy perfect compatibility of body, mind, and spirit. But for those who don't know the Lord, or those who marry outside the faith, or for those in different places in their walk with the Lord, compatibility of spirit is a constant challenge. As for compatibility of the body, there's no shortage of people, who are able to find great enjoyment there, even without the formal commitment of marriage. But then that compatibility of the body, which was created to be a good thing, causes them to overlook their compatibility of mind and spirit. Do they even have the same interests? Are they equipped to help one another in life, or are they best suited to different pursuits? And even in a loving marriage, compatibility of the body can be a challenge for no fault of the individuals, but due to the broken nature of the world, injury, disease, frailty of age, or differing libidos. And when we get married, we often have an ideal image of what marriage will be like, what we envision our spouse to be like. But after we get married, It doesn't take long to discover that the other person is not much like our vision. Now, you can focus on the difference between your ideal and the reality and then try to either openly or subversively push your spouse into that image you created. Or, by the grace of God, you can increasingly come to accept the other person as they are, including their own standards of how they should be. And then you conform to and uplift those standards. It takes humility and hard work to adapt to and cultivate the interests and aspirations of your spouse, but it is work well worth doing. A marriage might not look like it did in Genesis chapter 2. But the fact that it was instituted before the fall shows that it is a good thing. I recognize that within this room, there are people that have been married longer than 50 years. And there are people that have never been married. Among us are people that have gone through the heartbreak of divorce. And those that have experienced the heartbreak of the death of a spouse. We have people experiencing happy marriages and others going through a difficult season. Whatever the case might be for you, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, made a profound theological point about marriage from verse 24 in our passage, a point that applies to everyone. He says that the two becoming one flesh is a profound mystery. not mystery in the sense of unknowable, but mystery in the sense of incredible or amazing. One flesh, he says, is not simply a truth about marriage. It refers to the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. The church is one flesh, one body with Christ. Marriages are not perfect because they involve a sinner married to another sinner. But Christ is perfect. He will never fail you. Though we're often unfaithful to him, he is always faithful to us. He will never divorce his bride. Instead, he cleanses us from our unrighteousness. Paul wrote that he cleansed his bride, the church, with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This imagery combines the idea of a bride getting washed and clothed on her wedding day with the concept of baptism and sanctification, Christ does the washing and clothing of his church. He loves us and makes us presentable. And he accomplished this washing through his sacrificial death. As 1 John 1, verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And by his resurrection, we have confidence in his provision. And so what should we do? In light of this text. If you're married, love your spouse. And whether you're married or not, love the Lord Jesus Christ, your husband. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi.